0: Hey, welcome to In Doubt. This week we talk with Dr. Bob Cutillo, a physician for the homeless in Colorado. We talk about health and faith. Christians, much like everyone
1: else, seem to leave their faith at the door and seem to exercise very little of that faith when they enter the hollow halls of medicine. It almost seems like everyone else, they're overwhelmed by the power and the prestige of medicine, and they seem to have a difficulty bringing their faith in a personal God who is very much aware of what they're going through. And it almost becomes sort of this distant cosmic deity that is on the sidelines while medicine manages the show.
0: Hey, this is Isaac, host of In Doubt. Glad to be with you this week as we look at a topic that doesn't seem to get much traction today and that's health. You know, The question is, how should we view physical health in light of our Christian faith? The technological advancements in the medical world are astounding, I don't think anyone would deny that the healthcare we provide today is better than it ever has been. But isn't it interesting that even though we've advanced so much, that anxiety and stress about one's health is rising? Dr. Bob Cutillo, who wrote a book called Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age, joins us this week to talk about the ideas of health and faith and ultimately how we should view our health. Also just a quick shout out to everyone listening across Canada on the radio. We want to know if you're listening that way so give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or message us on Facebook or Twitter. But anyways, here's my conversation with Dr. Bob Cutillo. With me today is Dr. Bob Cutillo. He's a physician for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, an associated faculty member at Denver Seminary, and also an assistant clinical professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Thanks for coming on the show today, Bob. It's good to be on your show, Isaac. Thank you for inviting me. Um, First thing before we jump in our conversation, uh, Bob, how how did you meet Jesus?
1: Well, uh, I... um... Just in, in brief, I come originally from an Italian family in northern New Jersey. I was born in uh, the greater New York City area and um, attended medical school in New York City. And I had the uh, great blessing, thanks be to God, of realizing the truth of the gospel and the goodness of God for me right before entering medical school. So mm-hmm. that's when I first realized that uh, Jesus was my Lord and Savior and that I mm. I wanted to follow him. And, and that was a very wonderful timing on God's part because... For me, it was a monumental change to uh, leave sort of behind the the despair and confusion of my life on my own and Mm. see the great difference in seeing things from a biblical world point of view. So there I was becoming a new Christian, then immediately entering into um, becoming a doctor and entering the world of sickness and death. Mm. And for me, it was just so important that I had that foundation to begin to reflect upon my life there. And so basically, I've... uh, Spent most of my time as a doctor in um, mostly large urban centers in the United States,
0: okay.
1: uh, caring for disenfranchised populations. But I did spend a few years in Central Africa as a missionary. In fact, it might be oh. interesting because I know we're speaking to a heavily Canadian audience. I actually yeah. learned French oh. to speak in um, uh, French-speaking Africa. We no were way. at Laval University in Quebec, Canada for a year. Wow, very and, cool. And uh, my, my son was born at Hôpital Saint-Sacramont in uh, in Quebec, so that awesome. uh, <laughs> we we spent a little time in Canada and appreciated that. Oh, good. But um, so now we've been in Denver since uh, 1999, and uh, my two kids have grown up here from their preteen to adolescent years, and so I've been here for about 19 years now, 18 years. Okay, Denver, Colorado.
0: Now, when you were, I just had a question. When you were in medical school and you just, you know, sort of gave your life to the Lord, went to medical school, did you feel kind of alone in your in your faith? Was there other Christian brothers and sisters in in those classes? Well, the wonderful thing
1: was we, um, one of my early classes, uh, I saw a young uh, fr- a friend, of, a young student, Another, I didn't know him at that point, and He was in the front of the uh, uh, medical school uh, auditorium and he was memorizing scriptures. Oh, wow. I went up to him and I said, what are you doing? And his name was Juan and, and he and I and two or three others became quite a small group uh, oh, cool. that strengthened our ability to uh, to be Christians in a, at times, hostile yeah. uh, situation of, of trying to trying to see um, what it means to practice medicine from a Christian perspective versus um, a secular perspective. So it's really good to have some yeah. brothers and sisters in Christ. We did find some folks to get together with and be strong and support each other. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. That's so good. Now, um, as I said at the beginning, I mean, you wear, you know, at least a few different hats. I, I, I'm just, what's a snapshot of your life look like now? Well, I
1: spend uh, portions of four days uh, seeing patients at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, which as probably you can tell, as uh, folks that primarily live either in no housing or shelters or street or transient housing, and so we we try to deliver as broad-based a care as we can in that context. And then um, I sporadically teach my seminary class at the seminary, and then I also teach medical students at the university. So
0: um,
1: those those teaching and um, practicing roles really work well together because by practicing medicine in the trenches and then going and trying to teach people what it means to be a good doctor, they really correlate with each other. It helps me to keep my mind fresh and my, my applicability strong.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you for the, for the work that you do. That's awesome. Now, uh, you wrote a book last year um, called Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. Um, now, to sort of propel us into this conversation on health and faith, do you mind just giving us sort of the general understanding of what you're kind of getting at here? Um, and then what's the problem you're, you're addressing?
1: Well, Isaac, I think that probably I would have to say that the motivation for writing the book and being someone who's not primarily an author or a writer, but being someone who has a deep desire to communicate truth, yeah. the motivation for the book really sprung from two observations that I was making over my years as a physician and became clearer and stronger to me as I practiced medicine over the years.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The first observation was this widening gap between the way we were pursuing health, especially in the modern West, mm-hmm. the promises that medicine was making, and our expectations for healthcare, and comparing all of that with the truth about who we really are as human beings. And, I mean, as you know, the Bible has a lot to say about what we are as human beings right. and our nature and who right. we are in our destiny. And I was seeing this widening gap where I was spending more and more time on things that mattered less mm. and less and less time on things that mattered more. And so that was quite disturbing. In fact, if I give you maybe a simple example to illustrate, not too too long ago, I was counseling an elderly woman, um, quite elderly in her 90s, about an operation that she probably would benefit from for a fairly distressing symptom she's having on a daily basis. And so I kind of, you know, in medicine, we have our routines and we just sort of feel like every patient we have to treat the same way. And so I start going in there and I start going into all the pros and cons of the operation and all of the advantages and disadvantages of of doing it and not doing it and correlating with her symptoms and making sure she had informed consent. And she stopped me in the middle of it all, and she said, Doctor, you can stop talking now. I'm going to have the operation. I just want you to know that I'm afraid. Wow. And, you know, the thing is, the way medicine is going, we have less and less time, and many of my colleagues have a real heart for this, less and less time hearing what people really are afraid of and just sort of doing things so routinely. And so that was one of the observations. Mm. But let me also say that the second observation is probably the one that finally pulled the trigger. I think most disturbing of all for me was seeing that Christians, much like everyone else, seem to leave their faith at the door and seem to exercise very little of that faith when they enter the hollow halls of medicine. It almost seems like everyone else, they're overwhelmed by the power and the prestige of medicine. And they seem to have a difficulty bringing their faith in a personal God
0: mm. who
1: is very much aware of what they're going through. And it almost becomes sort of this distant cosmic deity that is on the sidelines while medicine manages the show.
0: Interesting. And yeah. I think
1: that was something that was very disturbing to me. And In fact, it was such that it was so rare to actually see someone vibrantly practicing their Christian faith in medicine. And it would, would really catch me by surprise when I did. I remember this patient who was telling me about um, her mother with cancer and the treatment they were pursuing. And she said, you know, we, we followed that treatment, but I wanted to make sure the doctors knew that our real doctor was Dr. Jesus. <laughs> and, awesome. you know, we, we, could, we could use some of the medical things, but I wanted them to know that Dr. Jesus was the real doctor. Right. And so I think that ultimately, what I really hope is that more of us enter the halls of medicine, understanding that the real doctor is Jesus and that we can use the good of medicine faithfully, but we always have to remember who our real de- where our real dependence lies.
0: Yeah, that's that's so good. Now, Bob You say uh, you know after reading like the introduction of your book you say that with the advancement uh, of healthcare technology comes this sort of increase uh, of worry and anxiety and things like that So, you know, can you kind of flesh that out a little bit more? And then, you know The question that I think a lot of people would be asking is wouldn't it be the opposite with the advancement of healthcare? Shouldn't we be less worried?
1: Yes, uh, 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 that, that is an, an important perception that you uh, have clued on to because I think one would assume that with the advances in medicine over the last hundred years, we've had so much success in right. managing our health and overcoming sickness and delaying death that with the sense of, of accomplishment and all of that, that you'd think that we would have less worry and anxiety with more power and control in our advancing technology. But that's an important paradox that, that I have, you know, seen and more, right. that the more we feel in control of our health, the more anxious we seem to be about the things that, that, that are not yet in our control or haven't happened yet but could happen, hmm. even if they're exceedingly rare. I think that, you know, as my career has progressed over the years, I found myself spending less and less time addressing actual illness and more and more time helping people worry less about things hmm. that haven't yet happened. It would be like the context of be calling a patient with a test result and letting them know that it was abnormal, but it's probably going to re- re- come out normal if we do a couple other tests, and how much the anxiety is produced in someone, especially the more they have control over their lives or think they do. So the analogy would be that the patients that I give this conversation to have their date books set up for the next six months are the mm-hmm. ones that are most worried by this disruption in their plans, mm-hmm. versus those that are living more confidently day-to-day seem to be less distressed. But right. one of my colleagues used the, the idea that we all know what post-traumatic stress disorder is, yeah. but we're also now experiencing pre-traumatic stress disorder, that even before something happens, we're, we're worrying about it, even though it might be exceedingly rare. Right. And, and, and I was going to point out, this is not some brilliant observation on my part. It really is nothing new. I mean, Jesus told us in Luke 12 that who of you, by worrying can add a single hour to your life. Yeah, yeah. And, and so maybe if anything, modern research has only showed us that not only can you not add an hour, you're probably actually subtracting hours from your life right. by worrying about things in our lives. But I think that part of the, the dilemma is, and it is a paradox, but I think much of truth is paradoxical, mm. that with our increased success and our endeavors to control our health, we've learned to secularize our hope. Right. and place place any technical control over our circumstances. And that gives us little ability to deal with uncertainty or exercise trust, yeah. And so I think that the bottom line is that our efforts to control our health will almost always do more harm than good. And that doesn't mean that we're not interested in nurturing or stewarding our health. Right. but that's very different from controlling our health
0: definitely. and I think I think this next thought uh, will actually play into this a little bit because you do bring up a way of thinking about healthcare that I think, Sort of a lot of people didn't even have never really thought about. I, I certainly really didn't. Um, that it can be understood, Your health can be understood as either a possession that you you know you have or a gift that you've been given. So, can you sort of explain these two views of healthcare, and then you know the one that we as Christians probably should take? Well,
1: this gets at really the core challenge of the book, um, Isaac. Both both for me in writing and for the reader in reading it, because as I was thinking about trying to write a book about health. Um, you know, you immediately think, well, I need to define health. Right. And so, but then as I began to do that, I realized, well, first of all, there's already been so many good efforts at that. I couldn't do any better than that. Right. But <laughs> once you actually decide that you're going to define health, you're already in the wrong place. Because once you, once you make an effort to define it, then you start getting into measuring it and controlling it, and then ultimately you corrupt it. Mm. And so for me, it was really crucial that I, beg- I needed to get the conversation back behind what is health to what kind of thing health is, the the nature of health, sort of that rather what kind of thing it is rather than what it is. And Mm. so while it would be a mistake to try to define love or define wisdom or define the satisfaction of good work, uh, we would actually hinder it by trying to over define it. We know it when we see it. And the important thing is to first recognize it for what kind of thing it is. And so for me, it was really important that I try to take us back to the thing of, is it a possession or is it as a gift? Yeah. And so that's the book basically is trying to show the damage done when we treat it as a possession and the possibilities if we treat it as a gift. Yeah. Because really, if, we, if it's a gift, we receive it in gratitude. And in a sense, we feel a sense of indebtedness that we would use it well, that it's given so that we can fulfill good purposes in our life. So we are going to nurture it. We're going to invest it. But we're not going to try to control it as if it's something that's our possession. So I think that was the great challenge of the book for me to write. And I hope it's a great challenge for the reader
0: to read it. Yeah, for sure. Now, would you say that, you know, if you're changing your, your mindset to view health as a gift from God that you nurture, does that... Have you seen that uh, help people bring down their worry and anxiety? And h- how would that kind of work out that way?
1: Well, I think when you when you see it as a gift and you see it as a given, right. then you begin to realize that the giver of the gift um, who gives the good things like health has every desire to see our lives flourish within the gifts he's given us. And so in a sense, then you realize that you're not alone in the world, trying Mm -hmm. to defend yourself against all the, the, the dangers that are out there. And there are many, we know we live in an evil world, but that we are actually walking with, with a, a good God Mm -hmm. who has every good desire for us. And that when you entrust your life to God, it, it allows you to not take unnecessary risks with your health, but more invest your health and not consider your health a primary good, but a secondary good. Mm. That God is the only primary good. and Even something as good as health gets corrupted if we make it a primary good. It becomes a secondary good that we receive as a gift from the primary good who is God. And it allows us to enter into life with much more enthusiasm, much more energy, much more hope, and I think much more uh, involvement in the lives of other people in a meaningful way.
0: That's good. That's really good. Um, now, you, you talk about this, quote-unquote, wall wall of the world uh, that we sit on, and you kind of bring up the whole idea of Humpty, you know, sitting on this wall. Um, yes. So I have a question. What is this wall uh, of the world? And then if some of us are on this wall that you're going to tell us what that is right now, what advice would you give us to help us down safely? <laughs>
1: Well, I think I got a. I have to really thank Lewis Carroll. I got a lot of mileage
0: from Humpty Dumpty. It's <laughs> good. Um,
1: it's just an amazing story. When I read it and thought of what I was trying to yeah. to, to teach. I mean, here you have Humpty Dumpty, this um, this egg in a fragile shell up high on a wall, thinking that he's invulnerable, right. thinking that he's independent, and thinking that he's in control, and arrogantly thinking that he is the master of his universe. And it was just such an analogy for me of what modern culture tells us about our own lives, that we really do live in a world that tells us we are in control, that everything about, you know, of everything about our, the world around us says, you're in the driver's seat. And, right. Or if you're not, you should be. And so you, you kind of, you kind of uh, absorb that. You breathe that in with, your, with, your, with the air you breathe in. And you, and you begin to think that you actually are in control of your lives. And you can do it independently and invulnerably. So you're high up on this wall. And the higher up you are, of course, the more dangerous it is when you fall. Right. And so I think for me that's one of the reasons why I've noticed how sickness is so surprising to so many people. It's kind of a shock to their sense of things. Right. because it, it discomfortingly reminds them of their mortality, and it yeah. shows that their invulnerability is quite a thin veneer. So I, I just think that probably we're at a crossroads in our world because we've never really been here before where we have such an amazing capacity to avoid our mm. dependence and vulnerability yeah. as human beings. And we can continue to try and act as if we can make our, that go away, Whereas one of my colleagues said, to relieve the human condition of the human condition. But <laughs> what we really have to do is recognize it as an essential part of who we are now how you do that i mean there's there's many ways to do that the first thing is just to recognize the wisdom of the age that we are vulnerable dependent creatures right. i mean you can use an old african proverb like i am because we are and it is it, it, the whole idea that you can't be alone and healthy in your life but as christians we we can even do something as important as the doctrine of the trinity right. where in the very interrelationship of father son and holy spirit the Trinity teaches us that to be Godlike is to be the independent relationship, hmm. not independent and in control yeah. and having our own power. So, Good. just beginning with that wisdom of of our theological biblical of worldview. Yeah. Now, how you come down, if you realize you need to come down, yeah. and I think that's the important thing. First, <laughs> right. is to realize you're up there, and I think that's one of the one of the deceptions of our culture is that we don't realize what it, what we're what we're breathing in. But I think one of the things you should do is watch people who know how to live in vulnerable dependent relationships and spend time with them. Right. That could be children, that could be the elderly, that could be disabled, that could be the poor. I mean, I really think that when you you what you want to do is see community at work and to be a part of it. And I'm hoping that for many of our listeners, you know, listeners that Christian community would be a, a place for that. Right. Uh, yeah, that's good. If I could tell a, if I could tell a, if I have a minute to tell a story about sure, Christian yeah. community Uh, when, when I was a young Christian in New York city, I was a part of a tiny little church and, uh, an elderly disabled woman was coming to the church named grace and grace was blind and grace had a neck brace and, and she was alone and she had no one and and different people would bring her to church. Mm -hmm. And in my short time there in medical school, she, um, got baptized. And shortly thereafter, um, it was revealed that she had a terminal illness Mm. and, um, she had no family except the church family. And I'll never forget, this was very imp- strong an impression upon a young Christian like myself at that time, is to see how the church formed community around her. She went into the hospital for her last days, and the church said, we are going to set up a vigil that around the clock for 24 hours, as long as Grace is with us, we will have someone in the church by her side. Wow. And so we all participated in that. I spent my time there. Yeah. And what was remarkable was, first of all, to see the Christian community at work supporting one another in yeah. a dependent relationship. But the interesting thing, Isaac, is the witness it gave to the hospital staff. Right. They were so intrigued and so smitten by mm. this church community supporting grace
0: that's so cool. that
1: it was a witness in a sense. So I think that the, Trish, the, the Christian community can really be a place where we learn how to live in vulnerable
0: dependent relationships. That, that's so good. Thanks for sharing that, Bob. Um, Now, as we sort of begin to wrap up here with these last few questions, um, there are many young adults, uh, and not just young adults, this stretches over all demographics, but lots of young adults that seem sort of obsessed with their health, right? Fitness, weight, diet, they kind of feel like maybe Humpty, that they can be in control of it. Now, in many circumstances, obviously, these activities, this sort of anxiety can get in the way of their community, of church, their own spiritual devotion, things like that. So what are your thoughts on this obsession? And then what do you think needs to change? And I, th- I mean, you probably are going to say some things twice now because we've already talked a little bit about that. But
1: Well, I think that you know, one of the things we have to recognize is that a lot of our obsession with health is because we're focusing on how we look. We're focusing on our image. Right. In other words, we're not trying to actually be healthy. We're trying to look good. Hmm. And so I think at one point we need to make sure that we pierce that delusion okay. <laughs> uh, and say that that's, you know, why are we really pursuing healthy activities and make sure that we're not focusing on image. Right. But I think the other thing would be, it's again connected to this thinking that we're talking about is whether we can control our health. And I think that that's one of the first things we need to do hmm. is that our healthy activities cannot be pursued as if we can control our health. Let me yeah. let me give an analogy that I think might be really helpful for your audience, because I know there's a lot of young adults in your audience that either have children Mm. or maybe are thinking of having children. And I guess the analogy I would have is if you think about your children, I would ask you, how much control do you think you have over what your kids will turn out to be? Mm -hmm. And that's a very interesting question because we're kind of, that's one of the cultural messages we get with the way we raise our children. They think if we do it just right, they're going to turn out just right. And in fact, we know over and over again that we can't control what our children will turn out to be. Now, I want to be very careful to say that it's a good analogy because just like health, we can have a great influence over our health. We can have a great influence over what our children turn out to be. I mean, if we're we're raising them in an environment of warmth and stability, that's going to do buckets for them as far as what they might turn out to be. But we really have no control over what they'll turn out to be. Yeah, And I think that just like, the more we try to control our children, the more we get in the way of God's good purposes for them. It's the same with health, that the more we try to control our health. Yeah. So the obsession with health, if it is related to either image or trying to control an outcome, yeah. we're pursuing it for the wrong reasons. And we may still end up doing the same activity, exercising right. in the morning or eating good food. It may not change the actual action, but it'll change the motivation that's good. and it ultimately then changes whether it becomes an obsession or it becomes a good habit.
0: Yeah, that's very good. Um, I, I really wanted to ask this question because I, I find your role as a you know, physician for the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless pretty interesting, I like that. So I wanted to ask, how has healthcare with the poor and the marginalized sort of helped shape your understanding of health in general? Well, Isaac, I've been
1: uh, I've been very lucky that very early in my career I received a, a very specific call to work with the outcast in healthcare, and you know I think it's in a sense anyone who receives a call early in their life to know exactly you know what they should be doing for much of their professional career it's a great gift. Right. But I think I think besides that I didn't realize what a gift it was in that living in the trenches with folks experiencing a lot of the times their experience of powerlessness. I was much more able to see my own true state of health, which was really good for my own human condition and my spiritual condition. Mm. So I think that my uh, um, being called, I think it's made me so much more aware of God's grace.
0: Yeah.
1: It's made me so much more aware of the need to depend on others for health, that health really does need community. Yeah. And then unfortunately, it's also made me so much more aware of how the selfishness of our world and the injustices that proceed from them mm. are a cause of so much poor health. So I really think that it's helped me to see myself, see the world and see God at work in the world more closely because of this uh, intimate relationship. And if I can just make a small call out to your (laughs) young adult uh, folks, I think that what I just really want to encourage them that you really have to, you really may not realize how blind we are in our culture, that, that how much it's influencing our thinking. I really think that for many of us, you know, our culture is so powerful that it's almost like driving a car without windows. Mm. And, and there's so much cultural dust and debris on the, if, if we had windows, almost like a snowstorm with no windshield wipers. Right. And so in a sense, you know, we go to church on Sunday and drink this protein shake. And then <laughs> <laughs> during the rest of the week, we're drinking this cultural mix of individualism and personal choice and technical control. And I don't think we realize. So my, my, my sort of call mm. out to your young adults is, do something to help you to get out of your cultural box. That's good. And there's several ways you can do it. I mean, I've told people, you know, you, one of the ways, of course, I'm sure some of the pe- young folks have done this is to see it from another place, like go to another part of the world and see it from that perspective or see it from another time. I've, I've told people, you know, try to read a lot of books that are at least 50 to 100 years old <laughs> Yeah. because you'll get a totally different perspective on, on your world. Or in my case, and I think this is good for anybody, is to learn to see things from the perspective of the down and out, because I really think that if you spend time with folks like that, you're going to get a better view of how God sees the world. So you got to do something. I'm just, that's my, that's my plea to your, to your folks.
0: That's so good. Um, that obviously wraps up our, our time, but Bob, thank you so much for, yeah, taking your time out of your day to, to chat with me about this important subject that I don't think a lot of people, you know, think about. So I'm glad, uh, that we talked about it. Um, if you're listening and what, you know, what Bob's been talking about, what we've been talking about, health and faith, if that interests you at all, I'd, I'd encourage you to, uh, to grab, uh, Dr. Bob Cutelo's book, Pursuing Health in an Anxious Age. And you can find that at Crossway, uh, I can put all the links on the episode page as well for you. But anyways, again, thank you so much, uh, Bob, and I hope to have you back on the show again soon.
1: Okay, Isaac. Thanks for conversing with me. It was a great conversation.
0: That was Dr. Bob Cutillo, and as I said, the links to his book will be on the episode page. What do you think about what he had to say? Maybe you feel like you want to add something, or maybe ask a question. You know, we encourage this since our mission is to cultivate conversation by bringing the gospel into the issues of life and faith that we face every day, and that's obviously including health. So you can join our Facebook community by searching In Doubt on Facebook, or just follow us on Twitter at In Doubt Show. I also wanted to remind you about our free five-week Bible study through the book of Jude called Jude for the Faith. It's been out now since, I think it was January or February when we released it. But anyways, it's for individual or group use, and each week has a video teaching, has a reading, has a reflection, and questions. Everything can be found for free at jude.backtothebible.ca. Now, as we finish up, I want to take a moment to say that our ministry here at In Doubt is completely funded by listeners and people who believe that God's working in our efforts. All of our material costs us to make, yet we're giving it out for free. And that's why we ask our listeners to prayerfully consider either donating a gift or partnering with us to give each month. We know that God is the sole funder of this work, and we trust in him to provide us with what we need. If you're interested in making a donation, just click the donate button at indout.ca if you live in Canada, or indout.com if you live in the States. Anyways, that wraps up Indout for this week. I'm Isaac, and next week we have a conversation with Byron Elliott on fashion and faith.